Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Welcome back to Basketball History 101. This is Rick Loiza, and with me in studio is my producer and editor, Jacob. Hey, how are you doing, Dad? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. So today's episode is on the first women's game. Is that correct? That's right. So what made this game particularly special so you thought it deserved an episode of Basketball History 101? Well, for one, it just simply is the very first game held with female competitors, but more so, it was it was to highlight the fact that women jumped into basketball really quickly after it was invented. It was only a year later that women started to play. And that's really unusual because most sports were typically men only, and not for any really good reason. It's just that that's just the way it went. Women didn't jump into the game until much, much later, like hockey, lacrosse, rugby. These are games that women play, but they really didn't begin to play them until well after the games were developed. With basketball, it was almost instant that women began to to play the game as well. That's really interesting. So why do you think women jumped in so quickly as opposed to other sports? Part of it, I think that it was so new, unlike other sports that slowly developed, like, like American football developed from rugby. Uh, baseball developed from an older British game called Rounders. So most every other sport developed over time. And so it started to pick up a certain idea of who played it and how you played it. But because basketball was invented like instantly in the fact that it was invented by one person on a single night, nobody really had any preconceived notions about who should play, how you should play. Everything was still very wide open, and so that's a great place for women to just jump in quickly because it, they just didn't have any time for somebody to say, oh, women shouldn't play. That that just didn't exist yet. It was so new that anybody could just jump in, and why, why not have women play? So that, that was really interesting to me. All right, cool. Sounds like this is, will be a fun episode to do. Yeah, I think so. So uh, why don't we get started? All right. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we're going to talk about when women started to play the game of basketball. It actually didn't take long for women to start playing the game. The very first women's game recorded happened only one year after the game was invented. Dr. James Naismith invented the game in late 1891. And if you want to hear that story, check out episode one of this podcast. In that episode, I talk about the invention of the game of basketball and the very first game ever played. But the following year, in 1892, the first women's game was organized and played. The game really did gain a very fast following on the east coast of the United States. So who was behind the effort to organize the first game played by women? Her name is Senda Berenson, 
She organized the first game between students at All Women's Smith College, located in Northampton, Massachusetts. Smith College is only 19 miles away from the YMCA where the game was invented in Springfield. So proximity obviously had something to do with the fact that the women's game started at Smith College. Sometimes referred to as the mother of women's basketball, Berenson was on staff at Smith College and was a huge advocate for women's physical education. Now, this was the Victorian era, and gender roles were much different back then. Now, when I say Victorian era, I am specifically speaking of when Queen Victoria sat on the throne in Britain. And even though Queen Victoria was a notion away, many of the ideas of what women could and could not do were shared by the United States and England especially in a private university environment where the students were almost exclusively from the upper class. There were many at the time who thought that physical exertion was a potential danger to women. They thought that getting sweaty or pushing yourself physically could lead to fainting or even what they used to call nerves. In other words, they thought that for women to exercise, it could cause them to have a physical or mental breakdown. Of course, we know now that none of that is true. We see women today running triathlons, marathons, all kinds of professional sports, American Ninja Warrior and Spartan races, where they are jumping through fire and climbing walls. In many countries, women can now occupy any position within the military. Thankfully, we know more today about women's physiology than we did back then. But in any case, that was the cultural context where women's basketball started. Berenson was a huge advocate for women's athletics. In her opinion, there was no reason that women could not participate in demanding physical activity. She was definitely way ahead of her time. To that end, she expanded the gymnastics program at Smith College, but she wanted a team sport similar to what the men played. After looking at various options like football, soccer, baseball, and lacrosse, she decided that this new game called basketball would be just the thing to expand the women's physical education program. The game required running and physical exertion, but not too much. Even though Berenson was correct in her thinking that women were just as capable of playing sports as men were, she was still a product of her time and didn't want to push the women too hard, at least not right away. So she took Nate Smith's original rules and adapted them for women to play. Now back then in the very early days of basketball, and I would consider those very first 10 years as being the early days. Back then, they approached the game the way that you would approach soccer, or as the rest of the world calls it, football. The very first basketball game in 1891 featured 18 players on the court at the same time in a 9-on-9 game. There was no strategic reason for this, it's just that there were 18 players in the gym on that day and nobody knew otherwise. So because there were so many players out there, they spread out like soccer players with three defenders or backs, three midfielders, and three forwards. They would pass and move the ball similar to the way soccer players do. So this was the basis for Berenson's idea for women's basketball. She decided that it was best if the basketball court were divided into three zones. Each team would field nine players exactly like I just described. Three defenders, three midfielders, and three forwards. Each group of three would occupy a zone on the court, and you were forbidden from crossing into either of the other two zones you had to stay in your zone. This limited how much ground each player could cover. Remember, Barrington wanted physical activity for women, but she didn't want to push them too hard. So if a defender came into possession of the ball, she would pass it up to a midfielder on her team, who would then look to pass it up to a forward so the forward could take a shot. 
as long as you didn't move out of your zone. And as for the uniforms, well, they were made of wool. They were long-sleeved with sailor collars, and the pants were bloomer-style trousers. The trousers cinched at the knees, and they wore knee-high socks. The whole thing was very bunchy and loose. They basically looked like medieval page boys. So now, it's time to play the actual game. And I'll share that right after this break. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of you unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com ROW number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code SHN15 follow the link on the show notes sports history fans i'm ross from the podcast pigskin tales you're about to jump into another thrilling sports history moment but first let's dive into today's sponsor just in time for the holiday season introducing art of words the brainchild of word artist dan duffy from philadelphia Dan meticulously crafts stunning images by handwriting relevant words from some of the greatest sports moments in time. These unique budget-friendly illustrations are the perfect gift, sparking cherished memories and capturing hearts. Choose from city skylines, sports, history, and musicians to find a piece for everyone. And here's the exciting part. For that sports fanatic in your life, gift them a piece of their favorite team or player's history. Art of Words tells a compelling story. Explore collegiate stadiums, each meticulously crafted with every football victory etched into words. Or venture into baseball stadiums, handwritten with every player from the team's illustrious history. My favorite on the site is Bryce Harper 2021 MVP year. Because I'm a big stats guy, I think that's one of the coolest things ever. Check it out. Don't wait. Order a print today for yourself and your loved one this holiday season. Transform your wall into a gallery of captivating art and surprise your family and friends with a print of their own. Use code SHN15 at artofwords.com for a 15% discount on your order in November and December. Visit Art of Words, where words magically transform into stunning art evoking cherished memories and touching the hearts of those who you care about. Again, use the code SHN15 for 15% off at artofwords.com. Welcome back. So let's get on with that very first game featuring female players. 
Berenson organized a game between the freshmen and the sophomores of Smith College. This part is for my international listeners. In the United States, freshmen are what we call first-year university students, and sophomores are second-year students. Now, in this game that Berenson was organizing, men were not allowed to even watch the game out of a sense of sensitivity and modesty for the women. And Berenson herself was the referee for that very first game. As she went to center court to toss the ball up for the opening tip-off, Berenson's arm made contact with the arm of a sophomore and dislocated the player's shoulder. That was not a great way to start by injuring a player on the opening tip-off. A bench player was brought in and the game restarted. After two halves of 15 minutes each, the sophomores won 5-4. Remember, back then, a basket only counted for one point. By all accounts, the game was a success. The players had a really good time, they enjoyed the physical exertion, the game was not too taxing on their endurance, especially with the rules about using nine players across three different zones. The game proved that women could handle this level of exercise. But Berenson's vision for the women's game was for physical fitness and fun, and in that order. She never intended for the game to become competitive. She felt that the idea of cold-blooded competitiveness was just too masculine of a trait for good, wholesome young women who came from some of the best families in the Northeast. But anytime you start a new game, competitiveness is sure to follow. And with Berenson's rules, this is how the game was played for about four years. The game spread to other colleges very quickly, but the game was intramural. By that, I mean that the games were played by teams made up of students from the same school. So in effect, each school that played was its own little league. But people soon realized that women were not all that tired after playing a game by these rules. It was obvious that they could be pushed a little bit more physically. And some schools transitioned to a 6-on-6 game with only two zones, 3 on defense and 3 on offense. The midcourt line divided the court in half and was the boundary of each zone. This definitely opened up the game to move a little faster since there were only 12 players on the court instead of 18. This made the game more exciting. There was much more space to maneuver, and that led to more creativity on the part of the players. So some schools played the 9-on-9 with 3 zones, and other schools went for the 6-on-6 with 2 zones. There was no uniformity in how different schools played. There was no governing body for basketball at the time. Everybody was just doing their own thing, and playing however they thought was best. Then, in 1896, the first official women's college basketball game was played. Someone finally got the idea and said, let's take all of the best players from our school and make that a team. Then we'll challenge another school to put together a team of their best players and we'll play each other. So out west, Stanford University and the University of California at Berkeley played the first intercollegiate women's game. The two schools are both located in the San Francisco Bay Area, which made it easy for scheduling and traveling. So on April 4th, 1896, the two schools played each other in a 9-on-9 contest using the three zones, with Stanford winning 2-1. Around the same time, another leader in women's basketball by the name of Clara Bear published the first book of rules for women's basketball. It was an attempt to make the game uniform across the country, and it sort of worked. Many schools did jump on board with Bear's rules, but others continued to play their own version of the game. Unfortunately, both Berkeley, Stanford, and a bunch of other schools banned women's intercollegiate sports. 
In the end, they just didn't feel like it was very ladylike to have women compete at this level. But that didn't mean that women stopped playing basketball. As the 20th century rolled on, there were other ways to play the game because people simply wanted to play. In 1924 and 1928, women's basketball was played at the Olympics as an exhibition sport. At the Olympics, being an exhibition sport meant that you were competing on a trial basis. You still got a medal if you placed first, second, or third, but the sport was not permanent at the Olympics until 1976. Just five years after the five-on-five full-court basketball rules were approved for women at the collegiate, professional, and Olympic levels. Yes, you heard that right. Regular five-on-five women's basketball was not approved across all of the top levels until 1971. That was a decision that was way overdue. It took 80 years to go from nine-on-nine down to five-on-five, as it became obvious that the women could run full court without having a nervous breakdown. And throughout the 20th century, there were a few women's barnstorming teams. Women could play basketball through the AAU, or Amateur Athletic Union. The Pan American Games included women's basketball starting in the 1950s. But I'm not going to pretend that they had the same opportunities as the men. They didn't. There were definitely opportunities, just not anywhere near as many as the men had. It wasn't until Title IX legislation was passed in the 1970s that we saw a massive return to women's collegiate athletics. And let me just pause here for a moment and explain what Title IX legislation is. In the United States, Title IX was a body of legislation that required equal opportunities for women. It actually covered a whole range of areas. But the part that covered sports required that any government school that offered sports had to budget an equal amount of money for the men as they did for the women. So, if your school spent $1 million on men's teams, it also had to spend $1 million on women's teams. And that caused a bunch of high schools and colleges all over the country to create women's teams in a bunch of different sports in order to keep the balance in their budget. And this was an enormous boost for women's athletics in the United States. Now imagine how much further we would be in the area of women's sports if they had been able to play for the last 130 years when the game was first invented instead of just the last 45 years since the passing of Title IX legislation. But the funny thing about history is that we can analyze it, discuss it, debate it, but we can't change it. What has happened has happened. The beauty, however, is that we can learn from it. And there is a lot to learn from women's athletics in general and women's basketball in particular. As for Senda Berenson, for her efforts in organizing the first women's game, she was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1985. And all of the people that came after her to help promote the women's game even further deserve a lot of credit. Women play basketball all over the world and the popularity continues to grow. So that's it for today. Join us next time as we continue with the NBA nickname series. We will cover the Southeast Division, which includes the Miami Heat, the Orlando Magic, the Atlanta Hawks, the Charlotte Hornets, and the Washington Wizards. That's next time on Basketball History 101. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past.
Take care and see you soon.